Well, brothers and sisters, would you grab hold of your Bibles and open them up to the book of 2 Samuel? We're going to be looking at chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 4 this morning, and we're going to read all of them together right off to start. So 2 Samuel chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 1, so give your attention to the word of our God. After this, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. David said, to which shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. So David went up there and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And when they told David it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul your Lord is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. But Abner the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth the son of Saul and, made him, and brought him over to Maanahim. And he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Maanaim to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, Let the young man arise and compete before us. And Joab said, Let them arise. Then they arose and passed over by number, twelve for Benjamin and Ishbosheth the son of Saul, and twelve for the servants of David. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore that place was called Helkath Hazurim, which is in Gibeon. And the battle was very fierce that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. And the three sons of Zeruiah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Azahel. Now Azahel was as swift of foot as a wild gazelle, and Azahel pursued Abner, and as he went, he turned neither to the right hand nor to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Is it you, Azahel? And he answered, It is I. Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right hand or to your left and seize one of the young men and take his spoil. But Azahel would not turn aside from following him. And Abner said again to Azahel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? But he refused to turn aside. Therefore Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear, so that the spear came out at his back. And he fell there and died where he was. And all who came to the place where Azahel had fallen and died stood still. But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner. And as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Ammah. 
which lies at, before Gia on the way to the wilderness of Gibeon. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group and took their stand on top of the hill. Then Abner called to Joab, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? And Joab said, As God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until the morning. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight any more. And Abner and his men went all that night through the Arabah, and they crossed the Jordan, and marching the whole morning, they came to Mahanaim. And Joab returned from the pursuit of Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, they were missing from David's servants 19 men besides Azahel. But the servants of David had struck down Benjamin, 360 of Abner's men. And they took up Azahel and buried him in the tomb of his father, which was at Bethlehem. And Joab and his men marched all night, and the day broke upon them at Hebron. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And, the son, and sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon of Hinnom of Jezreel, and his second, Kiliab of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And the third, Absalom, the son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. And the fourth, Adonijah, the son of Hegith. And the fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abitel. And the sixth, Ethrium of Eglah, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not given you into the hand of David, and yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. God do so to Abner and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. And he said, Good, I will make a covenant with you, but one thing I require of you, that is, you shall not seek my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michael, for whom I prayed the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took from her her husband Patil, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Bahurim. And Abner said to him, Go, return. And he returned. And Abner confirmed with the elders of Israel, saying, For some time past you have been seeking David as king over you. Now then, bring it about, for the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to Benjamin. And then Abner went to tell David at Hebron all that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. When Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel to my Lord the King, that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David set Abner away, and he went in peace. Just then the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. 
But Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the army that was with him came, it was told Joab, Abner the son of Ner came to the king, and he has let him go, and he has gone in peace. Then Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away so that he is gone? You know that Abner the son of Ner came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you are doing. When Joab came, from, came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner and they brought him back from the cistern of Sirah. But David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Azahel, his brother. Afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house, and may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge, or who is leprous, or who holds a spindle, or who falls by the sword, or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Azahel to death in the battle at Gibeon. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn before Abner. And King David followed the bier. They buried Abner at Hebron and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner and all the people wept. And the king lamented for Abner saying, should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, your feet were not fettered as one who falls before the wicked you have fallen. And all the people wept again over him. And all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was yet day. But David swore, saying, God do so to me and more also if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. And all the people took notice of it and it pleased them as everything that the king did pleased all the people. So all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner the son of Ner. And the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I was gentle today, though anointed king. These men, the sons of Zeriah, are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of the first was Bena, and the name of the second, Rechab, sons of Ramon a man of Benjamin from Beeroth, for Beeroth also counted part of Benjamin. The Beerothites fled to Gittim and have been sojourners there to this day. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled, and she fled in her haste. He fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. Now the sons of Ramon, the Berethite, Rechab, and Benah set out, and about the heat of the day they came to the house of Ishbosheth, as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Benah, his brother, escaped. When they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of the Arabah all night, and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord, the king this day, on Saul and on his offspring. But David answered Rechab and Bena, his brother, the sons of Ramon, the Berethite. As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, when one told me, behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. 
How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed him and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we have read your word and we ask now with earnest hearts that you would use this word for our good, that you would turn our hearts toward you. We need you, the living God, to be at work in our lives. And so we pray, bless the reading and the preaching of your word. Amen. Well, that is a long scripture reading, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, and there's lots of interesting things going on in those three chapters, and I think, as I've been studying First and Second Samuel, that these are perhaps the most difficult three chapters of the entire narrative. Difficult in the sense to set before a people and say, this is the word's Lord for you, this is the word of the Lord for you, and it's good, here's encouragement. And so let's, let's start like this. So in the humdrum of our lives, so think about all the humdrum of your life, you, you mow the yard, you, you wash the dishes, you put your kids to bed, you do this all of the time, it's easy to forget that we as the people of God are heirs of glory. We're heirs of glory. We get lost in all of the monotony, but the fact is we are indeed heirs of glory. Revelation chapter 11, verse 15 puts it like this. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Just ponder that for a moment with me. The world is going to be swallowed up by glory. The radiance of the beauty of the only God will shine forth from everywhere and everything. And as God's people, we won't miss any of it. Just think that the troubles and the sufferings of this age will come to a definite end. Gone will be sin. Gone will be suffering. Gone will be death. Gone will be all evil. Forever gone. And best of all, as we consider what's coming, Christ will be in our midst. Christ in his fullness, Christ unmediated by faith, Christ available to all of our senses, and Christ not just for a day, but for all days, Christ forever and ever, world without end. Just ponder that. If you are in Christ today, that is the next page of your story, Christ Jesus today and forever. Just think, that's the next page in the world's history. It's God's kingdom, and God's kingdom forever. Now go back with me to the humdrum of our lives. Go back with me to all the mowing we do and all the the cleaning, the washing of dishes we do and the putting of the kids to bed. Go back with me to the monotony that makes up our lives, the monotony that goes on for days and for years. And it seems that all of these things promised to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the glory, the joy, the Christ, the kingdom are far off and far away from us. It seems as we we cast our eye to the future of what Revelation 11 verse 15 talks about, it seems that all of these things are unattainable, maybe even a bit unrealistic for us. And I think a good word to describe our present situation, our present lives, is disconnect. We live disconnected lives. And as we look at the story of David's life, I think that's a good word to describe David's life. He was a man 
of disconnect. Let me just remind you of David's story. As a young man, David received the anointing of the Lord. Remember, Samuel came to Bethlehem, and after the the whole procedure of working through brother after brother after brother, finally the youngest was brought in, and then he received the anointing of the Lord. And essentially what happened in that process is is what Samuel did is he, he took the promise of Yahweh, and he put the promise of Yahweh in David's hands. You shall be king over God's people in God's place for the sake of God's glory. Glorious promise. But just remember how David's life proceeded from that point on. David had to wait. David didn't get to proceed automatically to the throne of Israel. Rather, someone else was sitting on his chair. And rather strangely, David was called into the man's service. We know the story. David served Saul for years. Years. And David had to suffer David's time in Saul's court wasn't a pleasant experience. There was some achievements, there was some joy, but on a whole, Saul made David's life absolutely miserable. David was subjected again and again to the anger and to the rage of Saul, his king, and so David had to leave. Saul's anger and rage and paranoia reached this boiling point, and David was faced with a choice. Either he could stay and die in Saul's court, or he could flee and run. And so David really made the only choice available to him. He fled, and that was a type of death. Everything was stripped away from David. His family, his hometown, his occupation, even the very near presence of his God. And he was forced to leave and make his home among the godless, the Philistines, the enemies of God's people. That's disconnect. A level of disconnect few of us have ever experienced in our lives. And later on in David's life, as he would look back on all of the suffering and all of the waiting and all of the exile that he experienced, he wrote this in Psalm 56, verse 8, speaking to the Lord. You have kept count of my tossing. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. David was a man of disconnect. But as we look into our text, We have to notice this, disconnect is coming to an end for David. No longer will David be the man on the outside looking in. No longer will David be waiting to receive the promise. No, in our text, David is in the process of entering into the fullness of God's great promise. You shall be king over Israel. And the text of scripture wants us to see this dramatic note of fulfillment. Look at chapter 2, verse 4. In chapter 2, verse 4, David, for the very first time, is called king by his own people as Judah anoints him as their tribal king. And then if you cast your eye down to chapter 5, verse 1, all of Israel comes streaming to David, and they anoint him as their high king over all. And as we notice David's life, we're watching this great movement from disconnect finally to fulfillment. This should draw us in. It should catch our attention. Before us in the Bible stands a man who actually inherited the promises of God. A simple truth just stands out right from this movement we observe. These promises can actually be inherited. It actually happens. And this means then, we have a lot to learn from David's life and how God dealt with David. So hear this. The way God deals with David and brings the kingdom of God in provisional form in David's life is the very way God deals with us and brings his kingdom in complete totality. Or to put it another way, 
These chapters show us how the present disconnect of our lives will be overcome and how we will receive all that God has promised us in Christ Jesus. It means that these three chapters are really vital for our faith in Christ then. And so what we're going to do in our time is we're going to focus our attention specifically on the three remaining roadblocks that keep David from inheriting the fullness of God's promise. And we're going to study to see how these roadblocks are overcome. And so each roadblock roughly corresponds to one of the chapters that we read. So we read chapter 2, and in chapter 2, we're going to see the roadblock of political power. In chapter 3, we we read it, we're going to see the the roadblock of the folly of man. And finally, in chapter 4, we're going to look at the roadblock of the injustice of man. So let's start with the roadblock, the power of man, the first one. So Saul is dead. We know that. So Saul is dead, and that creates a power vacuum in Israel. The the government of Saul has collapsed, and there really is no government now in Israel. And so the men of Judah quickly rally behind David. He's their own flesh and blood. Chapter 2, verse 4, and they lift him up as their tribal king. But the rest of Israel, as they slowly put together their lives over days and years, begin to form around the house of Saul again. Chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 sums up this long historical process with these words. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Maonaim, and he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. So basic fact we see here, Israel is divided. Judah has at their head David, while Israel, the rest of Israel, has at their head Ishbosheth. So there's this division in Israel. There's Judah and David, there's the rest of Israel and Ishbosheth, and so we shouldn't be surprised that a rivalry forms between these two kings. And we shouldn't be surprised furthermore that all of a sudden there's a, a war between these two kings. And so the blood spilling and the war all begin at a certain point in the story, at the pool in Gibeon. And so there at the pool, Abner and his forces meet Joab and his forces. And then in a gladiator-like event, 12 men from the army of Abner and 12 men from the army of Joab meet each other and face each other in a sort of battle. And clearly this battle is a battle of symbolism. It's symbolic. The number 12 is used, 12 from Abner, 12 from Joab, and that reminds us of what? The 12 tribes of Israel. Here are the 12 tribes of Israel engaged in in war with each other. And the outcome of the fight, what happens? All 24 men are dead, lying in their own blood, stabbed in the side, warn us of a grim reality. If Israel fights against Israel, the only result will be this, the death and the destruction of Israel. And so what do we see in this roadblock? Well, we see rather obviously David is politically opposed. The power of man is arrayed against David. Abner opposes David. Ishbosheth opposes David. All of Israel excepting Judah opposes David. And even worse, we find that in this power struggle, Israel is continually weakening itself. What's happening? Brother is killing brother. Brother is killing brother. And we're left wondering as readers, Even if David gets the throne of Israel, is he going to have a people to actually lead after this civil war? 
And so that's the first roadblock. The second roadblock is the folly of man. And so as the story progresses and moves on, the story focuses our attention in the midst of the civil war, in the midst of the fighting on a trio of brothers, the brothers of Zariah. Chapter 2, verse 18. These are significant men. They're significant men, first of all, because they are flesh and blood of, of David. They're his sister's son, so they're his nephews. And they're also powerful men and great warriors. We will read in coming weeks of their great feats of strength and battle. But they are also extremely unstable men, men prone to great folly. And so there are two interconnected scenes that connect these three brothers to our story. In the first scene, we find Azahel chasing Abner. And the scene is a dramatic one. The much younger and faster Azahel, the text says he's swift of foot as a a wild gazelle, is chasing the much older Abner. And you get this sense that, that Abner cannot escape Azahel. And Azahel is closing in. And we have to remember that Abner is an old man. He's Saul's uncle. And so as this chase is, is going on and Azahel is, is catching Abner, Abner is trying to turn Azahel away. And so he, he shouts behind him. He says, turn aside to your right hand or to the left. And again, he, he shouts again, turn aside from, from following me. So Abner doesn't want to fight this young man. Why? Well, certainly he would want to save his own life like any of us. But the issue for Abner is not simply the safety of his own life. It's, it's he wants to avoid a blood feud with the brothers of Zeriah. And so look at chapter 2, verse 22. Abner is trying to reason with this young man. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? But Azahel can't be reasoned with. He is out for blood. He tastes it and he wants it. He has to have it. So what does Abner do? Well, he stops in his tracks as an old wise man and uses the speed of Azahel against him, ramming the butt of his spear through the stomach of Azahel and out his back, dead. Moving to the second scene. In the second scene, we find Abner, that he's had a change of heart. So there's Ishbosheth, he's the son of Saul, and he's reigning over Israel. And Ishbosheth starts to act like his dad. He starts to channel the paranoia of Saul, and he charges Abner with this conspiracy in chapter 3, verse 7, to take the throne of Israel for himself. And so Abner's insulted by this after all that he has done for the house of Saul. And so, so Abner, in the presence of Ishbosheth, says this. Just picture it in your mind. It's so dramatic. Chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. God do so to Abner and more also if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the house of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. This was no idle threat for Abner. Sometimes when we get angry, we just blow off steam. We say things that we actually can't do. But Abner could do this. He was the most powerful man in Israel. And so as the text progresses, what do we see happening? We see Abner talking with the leaders of Israel. And what are they doing? They're they're listening to him. And then we find Abner with David making a pact with him. And then we find Abner readying all of Israel to come under the kingship of David. But there's a hitch in all of this, isn't there? Remember Azahel? Remember what happened to him? The, the butt of the spear going through his stomach and out his back? Well, Joab could never forget what happened to his brother. His soul was angry and he was consumed with revenge. And so what did he do? 
in an act of deception, he lured Abner back into the city, pulled him into a meeting of secrecy, and there he stabbed him in the stomach, chapter 3, verse 27. And so what do we see here? Well, we see a roadblock. And what's the roadblock? David is undone by the folly of his own men. There's Azahel's folly in pursuing Abner, and there's Joab's folly of killing for blood. There's this inability in David's men to settle for peace. And what does it do? It obstructs the peaceful transfer of Israel under the power of David. And this brings us to the last roadblock, the injustice of man. And so in the story, Ishbosheth is on a losing streak. His name means man of shame. And he is a man of shame. His army can't stand before David's chapter 3, verse 1. David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. Then to make matters worse, Abner, his lead general, his most important backer in Israel, defects and goes over to the side of David. But the worst thing that happens, happens in chapter 4. Ishbosheth is taking his noonday rest during the heat of the day, is lying on his bed, and two of his own men come in and murder him. And so we read chapter 4, and on the surface, it seems like a, a win for David. Who is standing in David's way at this point in the story? Well, it's Ishbosheth. He's gone. Good news, right? Well, what happens in the story? Who shows up at David's door? Well, it's none other than the murderers of Ishbosheth, Rechab, and Bena. And what do they have in their hands, their blood-stained hands? They have the head of Ishbosheth, bringing it to David as a present. And here's the roadblock. Now it looks like David was responsible for this shameful act of injustice. This isn't what men do. This is what godly kings do, murder someone on their bed. And now it looks like David put out this hit on Ishbosheth. And so we surveyed chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4. And our survey shows that their roadblocks are piled high. What's going on? David is, first of all, opposed by the power of man. Abner is against him. Ishbosheth is against him. All of Israel is against him except for Judah. And then David is undone by his own men, their, their folly, their stupidity. There's Azahel. He, he can't give up the fight. And then there's Joab. He's consumed by revenge. And they wreck this peaceful transfer of power. And then there's those murderers who, through their act of injustice, attempt to stain David's pure hands with blood. And so with all of these roadblocks in front of us, as readers, we start to raise some questions, don't we? We start to say things like, well, I, I thought this was about receiving the promise. I thought these three chapters were about the end of the disconnect. I thought this was about the victory of David. But all I see in chapter 2 and chapter 3 and chapter 4 is, is roadblock after roadblock after roadblock and problem after problem after problem. So we have to ask, how does David overcome the disconnect and enter into the fullness of the promise. We, we see all of these roadblocks, but we also know at the same time, chapter 2, verse 4, and chapter 5, verse 1, that David will be king over Israel. How are these roadblocks overcome? Well, let's begin by looking at David. That seems like a very logical place to begin. Now, we have to remember that at this time, in chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, that there is a civil war taking place in Israel. And if you know anything about civil wars, if you've read about them or studied them, civil wars are a time of great confusion, bloodshed, conspiracy, 
all of it. It's crazy. And when we remember this, and as we study David's actions, David's actions are really peculiar and odd for a king in the middle of a civil war. Just take note of David. I want to point out his actions really quickly. First of all, we find him in chapter 2, verse 1, and he's what? He is praying for direction. Then after that, we find him sending messengers and gifts to Jabesh Gilead, the the staunchest supporters of Saul, chapter 2, verse 6. And then, rather oddly, David just disappears from the storyline. He's just gone. And the story focuses on Abner and Joab and Azahel as they chase each other around frantically in the story. And then in chapter 3, verse 2, we find David marrying women and making lots of babies. We find David throwing parties. Chapter 3, verse 20, we find David looking past the faults of Abner so as to bring peace to Israel. We find David leading a funeral service. There David is. His clothes are torn. There's sackcloth on him. There's a sad song in his mouth. Chapter 3, verse 31. We find David writing poetry. Chapter 3, verses 33 and 34. We find David doing justice for the sake of his enemy, chapter 4, verse 12. I don't know about you, but that seems really odd for a king in the middle of a civil war. Now compare David, because it gets even more amazing when we we compare David to the other men we meet in the narrative. And so we met Azahel, and what was Azahel doing? He was chasing after Abner, refusing to lend, and we ask, why? Why was Azahel chasing Abner? Well, for the glory of the kill. And then there's Joab, and what does Joab do? Well, he kills Abner. Why? Blood vengeance. He cannot let the death of his brother go. He must kill. And then there's Abner and Ishbosheth. And what happens to them? They have this falling out. Why? Because they're arguing about power and privilege. And then there's Rechab and and Bainon. What do they do? They kill Ishbosheth. Why? Because they want a seat in David's kingdom. They see an opportunity for advantage for themselves. What are all these guys doing? Well, they're frantically working to secure for themselves place and position, scratching and clawing with everything they have, killing and lying, doing whatever it takes to get it. And then in these three chapters, we see David. And in contrast to all of these men, David is passive. He leads no campaign. He chases no man. Instead, everyone comes to David. It's amazing. Everyone is coming to talk to David. David is not going to anyone. He kills no one in battle. His hands are free from all bloodshed. And this is where we see something of great significance for ourselves. We see in David a calm determination to do what? To trust in the anointing of the Lord. What is David doing? He's not looking to his own resources or the resources of others, but throughout this narrative, David is waiting upon the word of the Lord to do the work of the word of the Lord. He's trusting the word of the Lord to do its irresistible work in his life. And this is where the story reaches out and grabs us. How is the disconnect overcome in our own lives? Well, it's not overcome through frantic grabbing, through scratching and clawing. No, it is bridged, it is overcome through patient, calm, and determined faith in the word of God, the word of the gospel. And this is where these chapters begin to instruct us. Do you want to inherit the coming glory of God? Do you want to taste it and receive it and bask in it? 
Do you want to share in, in, in Christ Jesus forever, to be with him and to, to see him and to treasure him, to know the fullness of his presence? If you want to live in God's kingdom for all time, here's what you must do. You must put away all frantic grabbing, all scratching and clawing because the glory of God and the kingdom of Christ cannot be attained by any worldly method. Just look at the men who use worldly methods. They either up ended dead, Azahel is dead, Abner is dead, Ishbosheth is dead, Rechab, Bina are all dead, or they're shamed and cursed like Joab and his whole house. Instead, David charts the course. Do you want to inherit the coming glory? Do you want the kingdom of Christ? Do you want Christ himself? Well, this is what you must do. You must trust the word of the gospel and you must wait with determined patience for the word of the gospel to do its work in this world, overcoming every single roadblock. But it has to be said, faith is not enough. David's story calls for faith. We need to trust the word and promise of God. We need to, to believe it. We need to have faith. But faith is not enough. And that is a rather th odd thing to say. But it's true. Faith isn't enough. Faith is not some magical potion that makes everything better. Just believe and you're going to get what you want. Just believe and you're going to get the kingdom of God and Christ and everything in it. Why? Well, faith doesn't have any intrinsic power. Faith by itself, in itself, is impotent to do anything. Faith only matters if it is connected to the living God. Even more, faith only matters if the living God is working and working actively for your good. Just look into the story. David understood this. His head wasn't buried in the sand while he sang to himself happy little tunes as a civil war raged around him. No, his faith was founded upon the living and working God of Israel. And I think the most important verse in these three chapters is found in chapter 4, verse 9. So David has in front of him Rechab and, and Bena, the men who just killed Ishbosheth. They have his head in their hands. And David makes an oath before the Lord that he is going to kill them for their injustice, he's going to do justice. And in David's oath, he gives us this theology lesson. He says this, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. And here we find the answer. How is the disconnect overcome? It is ultimately overcome by the living God himself. And David gives us the authoritative interpretation of these three chapters. Hear the good news. No power of man, no stupid folly, no act of injustice can thwart the living God. The armies of Abner all are against David. The bloodlust of Joab, the injustice of criminals could not stop the living God. This is so good. God promised to David a throne. And what does God do? He sits David down upon the throne of Israel. This whole matter is God through and through. And David points us towards the answer. As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. And this means something for us. Something rather profound. Brother, sister, hear this. Nothing in your life matters at all. Nothing in your life matters at all unless the living God is working for your sake. Nothing. Not prayer, 
not your work, not your Bible reading, not your faith. Nothing matters unless this living God is redeeming you and rescuing you out of every adversity. All of these things are void. All of them are meaningless unless God is at work, the living God. And brothers and sisters, this is the most freeing thing of all. Because when we meditate on it, what does it do? It leads us to the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because at the heart of the gospel is the truth about what the living God has done for sinners. What do we rest upon? We rest upon this fact that God has taken action for our sake. The Father, in his mercy, sent his Son for sinners. The Son, filled with love, went to the cross for sinners. The Spirit, full of grace, is sanctifying sinners, readying them and setting them apart for Jesus' sake and Jesus' glory alone. And it's when we turn our eyes to the gospel of Jesus Christ and we find God revealed in those works, we learn to say something better than David could ever say. As we gaze upon the mercy of the Father and the love of Christ and the grace of the Spirit, our hearts are filled with confidence because we know beyond a shadow of doubt as we look with faith into the gospel and all that's there, we're filled with this profound confidence that God has worked for us. God has worked for us. And what happens when you turn your eyes to see the gospel and God opens your eyes and you can see all that Christ has done, we can speak with greater confidence than David. David could say, as the Lord lives, who redeemed my life out of every adversity, we speak something better and greater than David ever said. We can speak with the Apostle Paul and say, I am sure that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. When you look at the gospel of Jesus Christ, the heart gets confident. Why? Because we know God has worked for us. And so what's the takeaway from all of this? We read chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4. We took note of the, the three roadblocks that David faced, the, the power of man, the folly of man, the injustice of man. We, we took notice of David's life, this movement from disconnect to fulfillment and how David was acting in the midst of this, waiting patiently on the word of the Lord to do its work. We've turned our eyes to God and we've seen him. He is the God who redeems David out of every adversity. What does this mean for us? Well, it means this. You need the living God. It's a very simple truth that these three chapters preach. You need the living God. I ask you, do you want the coming glory? Do you want to live in that kingdom of goodness and righteousness where there is no sin or evil or trouble or death? Do you want to have Christ forever and ever, the greatest treasure of all? Well, here's what you need. You need the living God. And so hear the call of the gospel. Seek the living God. Seek the living God. Call upon his name and know this. He is a God who delights. He's a God who delights to work for sinners. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we turn our hearts to you now because we need you. You are the living God. God. You are the only God. You are the God who saves. You redeemed David's life out of every adversity. 
And you have done a greater work for us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have redeemed us from sin and death and hell. And so we pray, would you fill our hearts with great confidence even more? Would you continue to work for us? Amen.